Last Sunday, we returned to our study in Job, sovereign suffering, and we had taken, I don't know, 10 months off to walk through Galatians and the doctrines of grace. Remember that series? We did that too and did a handful of other important subjects. And last Sunday, we looked at the first half of Eliphaz's third and final speech in Job chapter 22. Uh, where Eliphaz assumed that God is simply just too transcendent and too high, uh, just, just too lofty, too beyond all things to actually be concerned about Job's profitability and blamelessness. This was an argument that he made at the beginning of his speech to Job. And uh, we also looked at Eliphaz's specific accusations against Job. You know, the whole time up to chapter 22, Eliphaz has been blaming Job for hidden sin, but he's never identified any of it. He's never called it what it is or uh, described it. He just keeps saying you're hiding sin. And finally, in, in the chapter that we looked at or the section we looked at last week, he finally brought up some stuff. And you remember what those things were? They were dishonest business practices, withholding resources from the poor in their community like bread and water. And he charged him with refusing to use his great wealth and power to care for the most vulnerable people in us. And he even specified who they would be, and that would be widows and orphans. And I mean, these were like really, really serious, serious charges. They're serious sins. And this is what he hits Job with. And he basically is looking him in the eyes as he's un un unpacking these alleged sins, and he's saying, these things are the reason why you're suffering so tremendously. This is why you've lost, you know, your, your wealth and your family and your health, and this is why you have boils all over you. This is why you're miserable. This is why we're here trying to encourage you. <laughs> what a joke, right? But these particular sins are why you are suffering so badly. And we have another half of this speech, uh, and it really doesn't get much better. It does kind of toward the end as, as the friends always seem to come back to inviting Job to repent, but that was, a real, that was real, a real trial for Job in and of itself because the man doesn't need to repent of any kind of hidden sin or anything, but they do kind of come back to the gospel, if you will. In fact, I think that... Uh, in the last, the very last point that he really does, Eliphaz does kind of lay out the gospel for Job, but as I said, he doesn't, he doesn't, he has the gospel. He just needs to be encouraged as he's suffering. He doesn't need to be told to repent and all that. So there's really two things that are playing out in the second half of this speech. And firstly, he's going to continue to verbally assault Job. And what he does this time is he accuses um, Job of thinking, and he kind of hinted toward this last week, but he, he accuses Job of thinking that, that God doesn't actually see his hidden sin or care about it. And, and if, 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 you know, if you're being blamed for sin and you're not taking that seriously because you know in the back of your mind you don't have hidden sin, but you know, the person that's accusing you does, you're coming across to the person who's accusing you as not taking sin seriously or caring that God sees it and knows about it. And that's what Eliphaz is suggesting in this next section. He thinks that Job just, you know you're hiding sin and you don't take it seriously and you don't think that God sees what you're doing. That's, that's his, his charge here in this next section. And then secondly, Eliphaz, he does give like, because this is his last speech. This is Eliphaz's last speech. I don't know about you, but I praise the Lord for that. The faster these guys shut up, the better we'll all be. Even though they preach a lot of truth, it was just misdirected, but uh, he does give one more, as I said, opportunity for Job to, to kind of come clean and confess his hidden sins before God, and the problem is it's, if Job does that, it's for the purpose of restoring his prosperity more so than anything else, and that's, that's not the, the right attitude to have in confession and repentance. You know, I, I want to get back to where I was. That's the wrong attitude. The right attitude is I've offended God with my sin and I need to get right with Him. So, and as I said last week, and I've said it before, Eliphaz is like the Joel Osteen of his day in a way. Um, 
Last week I gave you two A's, uh, Eliphaz's assumption and his accusation. This morning there's two more. And, uh, well, yeah, my wife's in nursery, so I can do this. Um, <laughs> she won't like the letters. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn over to Job 22. We're going to look at the text that, that Bruce just uh, read for us, verses 12 to 30. That's the second half of his ending speech. I'd like to pray. Lord, uh, just continue to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to, to your authority and to your word. Uh, teach us from it today, and, and we pray that you redeem those who need to be redeemed and uh, sanctify and build up those who need to be sanctified and build up, which is every real Christian in this room. And uh, we just humble ourselves and, and ask that you... Um, I know there's a lot of truth represented in what Eliphaz is saying. I know it's just misapplied, but we still want to learn the truths that are here and hear the truths and know the truths and live the truths, submit to the truth. So uh, help us to do that this morning. And... Uh, and we just pray for your glory and, and your worship during this time as we pay attention. And we commit ourselves to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our third A, and this is Eliphaz's argument. The next thing he does is he lays out an argument for why he thinks Job doesn't take God seriously on his sin. And we see this in verses 12 to 20. It's kind of a, like eight verses there. It's kind of a big section. We'll break it off into pieces. We'll start with... 12 through 14, and this is, this is what Eliphaz says next to Job, and you can just tell what he's hinting at here. He says, is not God high in the heavens? He says, see the highest stars? It's almost as if it's nighttime when this interaction is happening, and he's pointing at the sky and saying, look at all those stars up there. All right, see the highest stars. And I'm telling you, Job, don't look at the ones that are really bright, that feel close to us. Look at the ones that are way off in the distance. Squint your eyes and focus, is what he's saying. See the highest stars, how lofty they are, exclamation point. But you say, what does God know? <laughs> Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thrick, uh, th thrick. Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see and he walks on the vault of heaven. Again, the language is kind of mysterious and hard, but that's because it's poetry. So this is just pure poetry here. Now, behind the acts of sin, I should say the alleged acts of sin that are listed in verses 6 to 9, Eliphaz now argues that, that Job has an attitude of defiance for thinking that God cannot see his hidden sins. That's essentially what he's doing here. It's like he kind of hits pause on his accusations and says, you must realize that God is in the heavens and you see the highest stars, he's above all those things. It's very foolish for you to think that he doesn't know what's going on in your life or what you're trying to hide. Of course, Job is not trying to hide anything, but Eliphaz is convinced that he is. And so he kind of launches into this argument about the, the, the height and grandeur and transcendence and omniscience of God because he thinks that Job does not agree with those truths about God. He's essentially reminding Job, hey, Job, you know as well as I do, is not God high in the heavens? We know He is. Is He not above all things? Is He not even higher than the highest, most lofty stars? Job, you must understand that because of his position, because he's above all things, he certainly can see all things, and he certainly knows all things. This is his initial argument. This is what he's saying to Job. He's essentially saying, Job, he's so high and so above all things that he sees everything, including the sin you're trying to hide. This is what Eliphaz is saying here. And in verse 13, he's charging Job with thinking that God doesn't know what's going on because God somehow lacks the ability to see and judge things that are in, what, is, what does he say, deep darkness. Uh, and I, I think the things that are in deep darkness aren't things that are like further out in space or any of that, but they're things that are hidden in places that man cannot see. And the one place that man cannot see is in the heart of other men, right? I can't, I can kind of judge a tree by its behavior or by its fruit, so to speak, but I can't see into Steve's heart. I can't see into Bruce's heart. I can't see what's really going on there between them and the Lord. 
I can monitor their behavior, and if they exhibit faith and a faithfulness to Christ, I assume they're Christians, but I can't see their heart. And, and he's essentially charging Job with thinking that God, you know, uh, yeah, he's so high, but somehow in your theology, God can't see into your heart and can't see the sins that you're hiding and stowing away in there in the, uh, you know, in the closet of your heart, so to speak. You know, God, you, you think that God is so high. Yes, you agree to that, but you think that God can't see your inner desires or your true motives or your secret sins. This is what he's charging Job with. And in verse 14, he just, he's just using poetry here in verse 13 and 14. He's using poetry, poetry to describe this. In 14, he's charging Job with thinking that God is, you know, somehow veiled, right? He's veiled in thick clouds, like as if God is here and then thick clouds have, have encapsulated him so that God can't see what's going on outside of the thick clouds clouds. And, and then he reminds Job, you think that he's veiled in darkness and can't see what's going on inside of you, but what God actually does is he walks on the vault of heaven. This is what he's saying here. What does it mean to walk on the vault of heaven? It means to be above all things, which gives God a bird's eye view of all things, including what's going on inside of here. Now, the thing is, is that Eliphaz's argument is stinking amazing. It is theologically sound. It is scriptural. God does walk on the vault of heaven. God does see all things and know all things. In fact, God's not even a learning God. He just already knows all things. And he knows what's in our hearts. He knows what our true motives are. We're not fooling him at all. And so Eliphaz is 10 zillion percent right about these things. These are big, weighty doctrines about the transcendence and aseity and everything that God is. He, is. he is right about these things. God is high in the heavens. He is above the highest, most lofty stars. Psalm 113 verses 4 to 6 speaks to this. God knows all things because his, what, understanding is beyond measure, it says in Psalm 147, verse 5. God can judge. Now, Eliphaz thinks that Job doesn't believe this, and he's trying to teach Job something that Job already knows, but God can judge through the deepest darkness. He can see into your heart. He knows what's going on there. In fact, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord looks on the heart. You remember the selection of David when he was a young man, you know, and, and Israel wanted to choose a big, strong, mighty, physically appealing and, and, and intimidating king in Saul, and that's what they chose, but God looks on the heart and chose David because David was a thousand times the man that Saul ever would be. He just wasn't as impressive looking. And that, that text speaks to that, that God, he looks, we look on the outward appearance of man, but God looks on the heart of man, that, that, that is an amazing truth, and it kind of encourages me, but it also ter terrifies me because it, it literally means that God knows exactly what's going on inside of me at all times, and I know me well enough to know that there are times where there is nothing good in me, not in my flesh. I know that sometimes I have wrong motives, sometimes I, I harbor anger um, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm kind of faithless and, and anxious about things that are happening and playing out. I, I, am I striking a chord with anyone here? We need to understand that, that God sees all of this and knows all of this. And, and I praise God for the gospel because God washes away everything that he sees on the inside. But that doesn't mean that I don't strive and work toward having right motives and having a right attitude and, you know, putting dealing with temptation in a way and fleeing from it and all these things. But he just knows exactly what's going on in us because he looks on the heart. God is, and Eliphaz is saying it, God is veiled by nothing. You think he's veiled by thick clouds? There's no storm system. There's no cloud system. There's, there's nothing in all creation that, that envelops God and prohibits him uh, and veils him from seeing anything at all. And, and I thought about this just logically. How do you veil a spirit? How do you keep... Because spirits are 
invisible and they're not encumbered or uh, um, uh, they're not um, limited by physicality and physical things. And so how do you, and it says that God is a spirit, right? He, he doesn't have a, a flesh and, and bones like we do, although we see God in the flesh in Christ. But beyond that, God is, you know, when God says he has a face, he's using anthropology. Homologic, I think is the term for it, or something of that nature. He's using that language to relate to us, but he doesn't have a real face. But how do you take the highest spirit, God himself, how do you take him and veil him? How could he be veiled by anything? How do you even veil a spirit? You, you can't take a spirit and, and put it in a closet and say, stay here. The spirit goes through walls, and there's just no way to contain. And so it's a very, very sound argument that he's making. He's just aiming it at the wrong person. How do you veil his spirit, the highest spirit? There is nothing, ultimately what Eliphaz is teaching Job, that Job does not need to learn because he knows it. There is nothing in creation that keeps God from seeing anything, especially your hidden sin. And this is all about the hidden sins because uh, according to chapters 1 and 2, nobody saw Job outwardly sinning. There's no evidence of any kind of... I'm not saying that Job's perfect. He was a sinner saved by grace like the rest of us, but he was blameless and upright, which means people couldn't charge him with anything. And yet here's his friends charging him with sins that they don't even know for sure if he's committed. And, and now they're saying, look, you know, you think, Job, that God's ever-watchful, all-seeing eyes can't see what's going on with you on the inside? Uh, God knows and sees all things everywhere at all times. This is uh, spoken about in Proverbs 5.21, Proverbs 15.3, Hebrews 4.13. He's right about God walking on the vault of heaven, which symbolizes the highest point, um, just as a, you know, the, the vault of a vaulted ceiling, the peak, would be the highest point of a vaulted ceiling. That's the idea. Uh, He's teaching Job that Job does not need to learn, essentially, but he's teaching him, hey, he, God is above all, literally. He's above everything. John 3.31, Ephesians 4.6, speak to this. You know, God's literal height above all things and, and infinite knowledge and wisdom above all things or pertaining to all things, this is why God is called most high in Scripture. Are you familiar with that phrase, the most high God? That's why that terminology or that title is used for God. It, it, it is communicating through a, a simple title, most high, that he is literally at the highest height, even above height, and transcends what we understand as height. He's beyond all of it, and he understands all things. He knows all things. He is referred to as the most high all over Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. There's a bunch of verses that I put in your bulletin, Deuteronomy 32.8, 2 Samuel 22.14. Boy, you want to see that title, the Most High? Look in the Psalms, Psalm 717, 472, 572, 82, verse 6, 83, verse 18, 91, verse 1, which is one of my favorite verses. We even see it in, in a minor prophet book, Daniel 4.17. We see this title, Most High, symbolizing He's above all. He walks on the vault of heaven. We see it in Mark 5.17, Luke 6.35, Hebrews 7.1. One thing that your Bible does is it works very, very hard to establish the fact that God is above all and knows all. And the title Most High communicates that with a quick, simple title. And Eliphaz, as I said, was entirely correct in his theology. He is right about God, and yet he was terribly wrong about Job. Uh, this is adventures in missing the point. Everything that he's doing is, is it's guesswork. You know, he knows that Job is suffering, and he believes that suffering only comes when you're sinning, because there's no such thing as, you know, suffering outside of sin. So he is just assuming and assuming and assuming. I wonder why we have the rest of this book here. I mean, because if I was Job, I would have already sent them back to wherever they came. I'll pay for your trip back the 100 miles. I mean, I don't know how he sits through this stuff. He's correct about his theology. He's wrong about Job. And yet Job did do a bit of complaining in his 
responses. Uh, he did complain about his birth. You remember that? It's like, why, why did you even let me be born, God, if this was going to be my outcome? He complained about his suffering. I think the thing that he complained the most about was God's silence. You know, he kept praying and trying to get answers for his suffering, trying to get relief, and God is completely silent because in heaven there is almost like a game playing out with Job, and, and God is not going to respond until the appropriate time, and He's not going to alleviate His suffering until the appropriate time, until the goal is met, and that is that Job holds the line all the way through and does what God knew He would do. But He does complain about things. I can see how Eliphaz and the friends would be able to charge Job with, with some of these things because of the complaining and whining, but... It's just still not true of him, what these guys are saying. It's not true at all. If you go back and uh, look at Job's initial speech in chapter 3 and all the subsequent responses in chapters 6, 7, 9, 10, 12, 13, 14, 16, 17, 19, and 21, I, uh, you know, we get tired of the friends talking, but I got to admit I've been a little bit tired of Job talking too. All of those chapters are his chapters where he's responding to these guys and saying things. But the point that I want to make now is that if you go back and look at everything Job said, none of these things that he's being charged with, like literally thinking that God can't see what he's doing or God doesn't see his hidden sin, the things that he's being charged with and accused of right here, go back and look at all his responses and you won't find anything like that coming off his lips. Job never said anything like this. Well, you know, I, I, I don't think God can see my pain. I don't think God can see my sin. I don't think he's being charged with that, but he never said anything like that. I kind of had to cruise back through his responses. I couldn't find anything like this at all. God or Job literally never suggested that God could not see his sin. That's what he's being charged with. And there, there's nothing like that. He never said anything like that. In fact, if you go back and look around, you'll find that he actually begged God to reveal his iniquities, sins, and transgressions so that he could repent. He was thinking, well, my friends are charging me with sin. Maybe I do have some sin and, and I've just forgotten about it. God, would you please reveal these things to me so that I can repent and, and, and so that I can be in a right standing with you and I, I can maybe have my prosperity restored or whatever? He literally does this in Job 13, verse 23. So, so Job believed the absolute opposite to what he's being charged with here. There was a time and a moment where he was begging God to reveal his sin. He wasn't he wasn't even joking with God or being sarcastic. They're saying, I have sin in my life. I'm starting to believe that. L point it out for me. Lay it out for me, God, so that I can get right with you. He knew that God could see his sin. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is, is that Eliphaz is making all of this up. He's making it all up. This is, these are inventions of his twisted mind. He is falsely accusing Job of all these hidden sins. He's falsely accusing Job of thinking that God can't see his sin or God is unaware of it. This, these are all trumped-up charges. He is charging Job with thinking that God can't see his sins just as he is falsely accusing or charging Job of, you know, allegedly hiding his sins of dishonest business and not taking care of poor people and not using his wealth to, to be a blessing and to care for those who, you know, the least of these, those who have literally nothing. This, this is all, it's just a, a, a mockery. And I, I, this, is, this is why Eliphaz and the friends get absolutely nuked in chapter 42 by God. God does hear and see what these friends are doing to Job, and it makes him angry. You're not speaking of him rightly, God says. You're not speaking of me rightly, God says. But Eliphaz is just unloading the gun. He's mag-dumping this guy. Verses 15 to 17, he says this to Job next, Will you just keep on the old way that wicked men have trod? Uh, they, and he describes what happened to the wicked men. I don't know who he's talking about in particular. Maybe just it's an example, but it, this does happen. He says, They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to us? 
So in verses 15 and 17, Eliphaz argues that, that Job has been keeping to the old way that wicked men have trod. What is the old way that wicked men trod, the, the, the path that wicked people travel? It's just the way of sin and rebellion, right? We would think of that as the broad road that leads to destruction. It is the way of, of, of willfully sinning and, and not taking that seriously and even mocking God with it. That's the way of wicked people or wicked men. And he even gives an example of the mocking here where sinners who are on the broad road, on the wicked path, say things like, you know what, I, I, I don't want to hear about your God. I, I, depart from us. If you exist, God, just depart from us because we want to live our lives the way that we want to live them. He shows that here. He gives an example. He even gives another example of how wicked men and women mock God. They literally think and say, what, what could, if the Almighty exists, what could He possibly do to us? And I, I like what Jesus called the old way of the wicked. He did call it the broad road that leads to destruction in Matthew 7, 13. So he's saying, you know what you're doing here? You're denying that you have hidden sin. You don't think God sees it. And, and you're on the broad road to destruction, bro. You're, you're doing what the wicked have always done. You're trotting on the path they've always trod on. This is what he's saying. And then in verse 16, right in the middle, right? He says this in 17 and 15. And then right in the middle, it's kind of like the verses are jumbled, but he says in 16 that Eliphaz, you know, it's like he's trying to remind Job of what happens to people who think like this and who sin like this and who mock God. He's reminding Job that people that trod that wicked path and say, depart from us, God, or what could he possibly do? They mock him like that. He is telling Job and reminding him that God's judgment falls upon such people, right? That God brings judgment against these wicked broad road travelers, anyone who mocks God in this way. And he gives an example of the judgment that comes against them. They are snatched away before their time. The idea that, you know, the guy was pretty healthy and doing really well. Yeah, he used to flip the bird to heaven and he didn't love the Lord. He hated God and wanted to live his own life. In fact, he worshiped himself. But then all of a sudden, at like 32 years old, which is relatively young, he just died of a massive heart attack. He was snatched away. He's saying this is what happens. God just brings judgment and ends their life in, in a second. He just ends their lives. And then, and then he goes on to say, not only does he, does he bring them to a quick end that's untimely and too early, and I think that's a joke because nobody dies too early. Everyone dies according to God's timing. But he thinks that they're wicked and God destroys them before they can get to a rightful old age. And then he says, not only that, but God washes away their foundation. That is the idea of stripping any kind of idea that that person ever existed. He wipes and washes their name and legacy and possessions and wealth. He just washes it all away. He erases all of it as if they never existed. And this is talked about in the earlier chapters of Job. Really what he's doing is warning Job. I suspect, Job, you're on the wicked path or way that wicked men trod. You must know what happens to them. Because this is happening to you right now. The washing away of your health and your resource and your family. Is God not judging you in the same way, Job, that He judges all the wicked? I suspect Job was probably in his early 40s at this point, and he's warning him, you're not even going to make it to 50, bro. This is what he's saying. Your life is going to be snuffed out by God if you keep mocking him and, and thinking that he can't do anything to you over this and that your hidden sin doesn't matter and that it does. It does matter. And I want you to notice a detail in verse 15. Notice how it's framed in a question. What does he say? Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? It could be rendered, how long will you stay on the path of the wicked men? How long are you going to keep denying that God knows what you're up to? How long are you going to keep denying the fact that you have hidden sin? How long are you going to continue to mock God and pretend like He doesn't know what's going on with you? How long are you going to stay on the broad road to destruction? I'm here to tell you this morning, brother, you do not have to do that. This is what he's saying. 
I like how the GNV, it's the good news translation, not one I go to very often, but I like how it renders verse 15. It says, are you determined to walk in the paths that evil people have always followed? That's a great rendering of verse 15. This is what he is saying to Job. Now, Eliphaz, again, is, is right about the wicked and the path they travel on, but he, he's not entirely right that God always snuffs out their lives early and, and washes everything away. Sometimes wicked men have a lasting legacy. Sometimes they live a long, full life, and that makes us go, why is that guy still alive? Right? We, we ask those questions. The psalmist asks these questions quite a bit, and, and the proverb writers do too. But, you know, it's like, Let's ask this question. Is he, he's right in his theology in a way, because judgment does come to the wicked, but is he right about Job? No. No, he's not. Was Job keeping to the old ways of the wicked? <laughs> was he mocking God, saying to himself, what can the Almighty do to me? I think he was saying the exact, the exact opposite. Look at what the Almighty has done to me. Because he thinks that God has brought this judgment against him. So it's really kind of stupid to charge Job with this when he's a living example, at least in Eliphaz's mind, he's a living example of the judgment of God, and Job is starting to believe that as well. Job knows what God can do to the wicked, so he's not at all wrong here. He's not off. Eliphaz is wrong about Job. Job is not wrong. We need to ask and answer this question. Was Job, as Eliphaz is saying, was he under God's judgment? Was he being snatched away before his time and having his foundation walked away, washed away? Because that's what happens to all the wicked, according to Eliphaz. No, he, none of that's true of Job. He was again, and we always go back to chapter 1, verse 1. We always go back where it says that he was blameless and upright. I love how the book of Job opens by framing the godly character of Job. That way we know that everything the friends say to him, there might be theological truth there, but they're only accusations, right? God vindicated Job right up front by those statements that all these things would be false charges against him. So he is not, Eliphaz is not right about Job. Job was the opposite. He actually wrapped himself in practical righteousness and wore justice like a robe and turban. Uh, it says this in Job 29, verse 14. Uh, Job was actually trotting on the way of godly men, you know, like others who had gone before him, like Abel, like Noah, like Abraham, who may have been a contemporary and lived at the same time. We don't know for sure. But it's interesting because in Job chapter 30, verses 12 to 13, it talks about how Job was on the path of the righteous but it talks about how it was not easy for him to be on that path. Why? Because the rabble cast their destructive ways against him, and they tried to break up his path. So, so, so in that verse, it, it makes clear that Job was on a, the path of upright and godly and blameless men. He was on the path of righteousness, but it shows very clearly that when you walk that path in and through Jesus Christ... All the forces of hell are going to come against you. The rabble are the worthless people, the oxygen thieves of his community, these dreadful, addicted sinners who do nothing but sin and want to pull righteous people right into their stuff. And that's what happened to Job. He walked the path of righteousness, and the rabble rose up against him all the time and tried to pull him off the path of righteousness. He was such a righteous man on the path of righteousness that everyone, every sinner outside of Christ wanted him to come off of that path. This is what Job says about Job. <laughs> so Eliphaz is insane. Verses 18 to 20, and Eliphaz is continuing to kind of build his argument for Job being a complete dummy. Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, Surely our adversaries were cut off, and they were left. Um, and what they left, the fire has consumed. More poetry, confusing, not hard to understand once you break it down. Basically, what Eliphaz is doing here is he's taking a statement that Job had made earlier, and he's using that statement to mock Job. In the previous chapter, chapter 21, Job described how the wicked prosper. 
And that was a frustrating thing for him, that he was a righteous man and suffering just unbelievable toil, and yet there were wicked people in his community that were rolling deep. And he was very frustrated over that, and this happens. And then verse 21, verse 16a, Job asks, is not prosperity in their land, speaking of wicked people? Now, the obvious answer is yes, because everyone knows that the wicked sometimes prosper in life. I would say that billionaire George Soros would be an awesome example of this, because that guy is just pure evil. He is, he's like a demon. And then in chapter 21, verse 16b, the other half of verse 16, Job says, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. Uh, the point that Job was seeking to make in the previous chapter in that section is that righteous people like himself, those who do not draw wisdom from the wicked or follow their wicked paths, they sometimes experience great suffering. Sometimes they lose everything. Now, Job in the previous chapter was, through his comment, he was hinting at the possibility of a third category, right? That righteous suffering exists. Again, remember, early on, Job did not understand there's a third category. If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. He has no category for righteous suffering. But in the previous chapter, he's starting to show that he's starting to understand that there is a third category. His friends still don't understand it yet. And, and Job himself was analyzing his own life and suffering as a righteous man, and that's how he was coming to terms with this third category. His own suffering proved that this third category exists. Now, so what we have is profound statements and realizations represented in Job's words in the previous chapter. Eliphaz is taking those words, those profound statements, and he's turning them into a bludgeon. In verses 19 and 20, he is saying, if there is prosperity in the land of the wicked, God fills their houses with good things, and you are a righteous man who does not keep to the old way of wicked men, then why are righteous people... Uh, glad, in our community, glad about your demise, glad about your fall, glad about you losing everything. Why are innocent people mocking you by saying that you have been cut off and consumed? So he takes a statement of Job and then takes the example of others in the community and just beats him with it. Apparently, there were righteous and innocent people in us who aligned with Job's friends against Job. It's bad enough that Job had to deal with these three terrible friends, but they were recruiting people to their team. And there were other townspeople joining in in their persecution of Job. There were righteous people who aligned against him. They too believed that Job must be a terrible sinner because only terrible sinners lose their wealth, families, and health. But their argument, gladness, and mockery proved nothing about Job. Essentially what he's doing here is he's taking a statement made in the previous chapter and using it to prove that he's wrong, and he's using the people in the community who are coming against Job and are proving along with the friends that Job is hiding sin. He's using all of this to beat Job over the head. This is a classic example of when your words come back to haunt you, but Job has said nothing wrong. So, so him pointing out that people in the community agree with us they agree that your statement is false and all this. It, it doesn't prove anything about Job. It only proves that they were just like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Self-righteous, judgmental, cruel, totally wrong. And we must understand, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to use a consensus here against Job. If everyone in the community thinks Job is hiding sin and wrong, then that must be true. That's what they're trying to do. And we need to understand that a consensus view does not necessarily mean truth. You can have a whole lot of people that have a consensus view of something and be totally dead wrong. Amen? Do we not see that in our country today? Right? Is the vast majority of Americans, are they on the right path or the wrong path? The wrong path. So this consensus ide ideology here doesn't work, and they're just using it to beat him up. I would say the consensus in our culture is that most people think that people are good and that Jesus is unnecessary. That's the consensus view of our culture. Are they right or wrong? Wrong. And Job, Job's friends, and the consensus view of all those who have aligned themselves with those friends, they're all wrong about Job. And they're now using his own words against him as a bludgeon. And the sad thing about our culture is that it has a consensus view that's wrong, but it's a damning view that we're good and we don't need Christ. That view damns people to hell. 
So that's his argument. He's taking examples from the community and arguing. He's taking some truths and beating Job up with them. He's, he's just full force coming at Job here. It's kind of building up here. And, and then he switches completely. The guy is exhibiting, not to make fun of people with bipolarism because it's a serious ailment, but you know you can be hot and cold when you have that. And these guys are like just so cruel to him. And then like three minutes later, it'd be so much better if you repented. They're nice. They're like Mr. Rogers. That's why I say just get rid of them. So we go to four, the fourth a, Eliphaz's appeal, we see this in the last part, 21 to 30, and we'll start at 22, 21 to 22. He says this, look, Job, you're jacked, dude. You are so jacked. You're such a terrible sinner. You're so jacked. You're hiding this. You don't think God sees it. Everyone in the community knows what you're doing. You're an idiot. Come on, man. And now he says, you need to agree with God so that you can be at peace with God, right? Verse 21. Thereby, good will come to you. 22, receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. So this is, this is an appeal. He's gone from accusation and an argument to an appeal. And, and he begins by appealing to Job to essentially agree with God. And there's such arrogance in this statement, by the way, because he literally believes he is the mouthpiece for God. Eliphaz does. Right? What I'm saying to you are the words of God coming against you. You need to agree with what I'm saying, and when you agree with me, you are agreeing with God. That's what Eliphaz is saying. Look at the pride. Agree with God. Well, when has God spoken to me? Through me. Oh, okay. I better take you seriously. That's what he's saying. He's trying to urge Job to agree with God and the words he's speaking so that he can have peace with God or so that his peace can be restored. And there is some truth here. Right? Agreement with God is necessary for true peace. Okay? There's various kinds of peace. None of them are lasting, but that's because people are not making peace with God first. That's the first kind of peace you have to have. You have to have peace with your Maker. You have to have peace with your Creator. And the only way to do that is to, to surrender and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Christ died on the cross so that sinners like us could have peace with God. Because outside of Christ, there is no peace with God. So there is some truth to what he's saying here. You need to agree with God so you can have peace. He just doesn't represent God here. I would say agreement with God is necessary for true peace. To agree with God is to accept His instruction from Scripture. It is to repent. It is to believe the gospel, essentially. If a sinner does this, again, it doesn't really apply to Job because he's already there, but if a sinner does this, they will have peace with God, which is foundational to every other form of peace. You cannot have true peace horizontally between you and others until you have it vertically with God. People today want peace between black and white and other shades and ethnicities. They want all of this. It's not a wrong thing to want, and yet they will never achieve it because their means of trying to get to it are through legislation and through protests, through looting, through tearing crap up, through intimidation, through, you know, I don't know, a trillion dollars in reparations, which are people are calling. None of this is going to, even, even another way that they think they're going to achieve peace between black and white is by demonizing whites. <laughs> You're not making for peace through these things. You're making more division. But they think it's going to bring peace between different ethnicities and colors. It's a, a wrong way to think. Peace comes only when people begin to realize that racism is a heart issue, not a, just a societal issue, and that Jesus is the only one who can change our hearts and cause us to love and value all image bearers regardless of their skin tone. Peace with God through Jesus Christ will bring peace into our lives and it can establish peace between us and others. There's your solution for peace. Get right with God, then you can be able to get, start getting right with others. But our culture is godless and essentially hates God. It's an idolatrous culture that is trying to make peace through all of the peace-destroying ways. 
I don't know about you, but it's a, it's a crazy thought to think that, well, if I go out and protest and riot and tear crap up, that's going to somehow establish peace in the future. Is that not what our culture is doing? You know, if we ransack Seattle, we'll end up with no racism and peace. You'll probably end up with bullets. That's what happened in Kenosha. Somebody got tired of the crap and opened fire on people who were assaulting him. It's a tragedy. The, the way that the world tries to make peace is the opposite of making peace. The way to peace is to have peace with God through Christ. Have your heart changed. Then you can begin to love other image bearers, those who are different from you. But until that happens, you're not getting anywhere. You're just tearing stuff up. Eliphaz was right about this truth and idea of, you know, you need to be at peace. You need to make it, you need to listen to God. You need to obey what he's saying so you can have peace. He's right about that. He is. That's the starting point. But he's wrong about Job again because Job was already at peace with God. He wasn't experiencing much peace in his life at this time during his ordeal, right? Would, do we think of Job as a man experiencing peace with all the travail and things happening? No. But do you think that's because God decided to dissolve His peace between Him and His servant? No. God never dissolved anything with Job. I mean, I guess He allowed His possessions and health to dissolve, but it wasn't to break peace with Him. Peace never had to be broken with Job. It was Job who broke his own peace with God because Job focused on his circumstances and tried to get answers as to why you want to destroy your peace, just entertain the idea of why is this happening to me. Just stay in that mode and you will never have peace. And that's exactly what Job did. Job needed to have peace, but he had it even when he was going through his travail. Actually, you know what? I think Job had more peace before his friends showed up. He had a couple of days there where, you know, he had his wife nagging him and all that, and that's always fun. But, you know, he, I mean, he wasn't griping to the level that he is now. His friends came in and he let his friends destroy his peace with all these allegations and accusations. It was Job's fault that he didn't have peace because he kept arguing with his idiot friends. <laughs> right? Just keep letting them talk to you, Job. How do you keep letting them talk to you? By keep responding to them. At some point you have to realize there's a scripture that says that any more words with this person is like casting pearls before swine. And you have to stop talking to them because they just don't get it. He ruined his peace. He destroyed his peace. And we do this to ourselves when we follow his poor example. Eliphaz says, Job, if you just agree with God, you'll not only be at peace, but good will come to you. Wow, you don't have good right now. You don't have peace right now. But man, if you do what I'm telling you to do, you're going to have peace and good, only goodness will come to you. Again, the inference is that, you know, goodness has left you because you're hiding sin. And this was false, what Eliphaz is saying here. God doesn't promise absolute eternal good in terms of, you know, temporal blessings in these things to His people when they're at peace with Him. You know, in this life, you will have trouble, Jesus said. There'll be things out there that'll rock your peace and try to strip you of your joy. This is a Joel Osteen type of promise that he's making here. Well, if you do this, only good's going to come to you. It is, you know. Agreeing with God will put a person at peace with God, right? You know, repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ, that'll put a person at peace with God. And it'll, it may even begin to foster and cultivate peace between others and you, but it doesn't guarantee that good is always going to come to us. That's where it's a false promise. Jesus literally said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. Jesus is essentially saying, look, you can have peace while you navigate through this world in me because I've essentially overcome it through my death, burial, and resurrection, but you're going to have tribulation and you can overcome that tribulation in me, but you're going to have it and you're going to have to deal with it. So there's no promise of only goodness here, especially the kind that Eliphaz is offering. Um, Eliphaz, as I said, literally believes he is acting as God's mouthpiece and that his words are the literal words of God. Everything I've said to you is God's word. And everything that he said here is recorded as God's word. Isn't that interesting? 
but he was not re accurately representing God most of the time. In verse 22, Eliphaz is telling Job that if you agree with my instructions, the instructions that God is giving you through me, and if you store in your heart the words that I am speaking, because those are God's words coming through me, only peace and goodness will come into your life. This is his promise. He almost sounds like a cult leader. Was Eliphaz actually being used by God to speak for God? No. Job 42, 7, the Lord angrily rebukes Eliphaz for not speaking what is right and misrepresenting God. <laughs> Anyone ever comes to you and says, God has a word for you? Run. <laughs> and that's what he's saying. God has a word for you through me. And then in chapter 42, God says, you didn't speak my words. Verses 23 to 25, if you return to the Almighty, he's continuing on his appeal here. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Wow, look at these Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes promises. Eliphaz continues to appeal by further describing Job's repentance. If you do this, you'll get this. If you do that, you'll get that. Job must return to the Almighty so that he can be, as Eliphaz says, built back up. He must also remove all injustice far from his tents. How does he do that? By returning to you know, honest business practices. You've been doing dishonest business practices. That's unjust. You better be a good business owner. You better pay your taxes, pay your employees, pay your FICA, whatever it is. You got to do it right. You can't be taking things from them and then not returning those things. You need to supply those resources to the poor, right? Bread and water. You need to use your power and influence to care for the most vulnerable people, widows and orphans. He's saying if you, if you do this and remove all these injustices that you're committing, then you'll be good to go. He says that you must lay gold in the dust and lay your gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed. What on earth is he saying here? This is just pure poetry again. What did he mean? Well, where does gold belong? In a clean, safe place, right? And Job was a man who had vast wealth. He was the most wealthy, most powerful person of the East. So where does gold, where should we store it? In a clean, dry, dust free place, preferably in a safe in a bank somewhere, right? And what is he telling him? You need to lay it in the dust. What does that mean? What does that symbolize? What do you think that means? You need to have less concern about your gold. You need to have less focus on your gold. Yes, it's precious. Yes, it's your wealth. But you need to stop obsessing over it. And you need to, instead of storing it and, and polishing it and acting like Ebenezer Scrooge and counting it on the table, you need to just lay it in the dust. You need to treat it with less seriousness. That's what he's saying through his poetry. He thinks that Job is obsessed with his own wealth. And Job was never obsessed with his own wealth. If you take your gold and lay it in the dust, you are treating it with less importance. And that's exactly what Eliphaz is instructing him to do. Take your gold, treat it with less importance. Why? So that you can focus on that which is most precious, on God himself. This is what he's saying. Now, we know that there are different qualities of gold, right? You know this, don't you? Right? You've, you've, who's bought a 10-carat gold ring? You're a cheap son of a gun. I'm just kidding. You're not. That's the lowest quality of gold. It is. It's the only gold that I can afford. So you have 10-carat. You have 14-carat, right? That's a little more popular. You have 18-carat. You have 22-carat. And what's the big one? 24 carat, like the Bruno Mars song. Don't listen to it. It's got bad stuff. <laughs> 24 carat is the highest quality gold, right? I'm just teaching you about these, these elements here, and this is what he's doing, essentially. 24 carat's the highest. What makes 24 carat the highest? It has no non-gold alloys mixed into it. That's the difference, okay? 10 carat has a lot of non-gold alloy mixed into it. 14, 18, 22, they have non-gold alloys mixed into them, which lowers the purity level and the value of it. 24 karat is pure. There's no non-gold alloy in it. It's just gold, and that's why it's stupid expensive. It has nothing else in it but gold. And most jewelers, by the way, use 22 karat. 
Now, the gold of Ophir, you're probably wondering why are we talking about this? Because he's talking about the gold of Ophir here, which was the 24-karat gold of that day, the highest quality gold, okay? Job must lay, right? His, this is part of his repentance to get back in a right standing with God and get all his stuff back, which is really weird. Job must lay his highest quality gold, his gold of Ophir, among the stones of the torrent bed. What on earth are the stones of the torrent bed? They are people. What is the torrent bed? Us, the community. He is telling Job, look, you treat your gold with, you are obsessed with your wealth and your gold. You need to take your regular gold and lay it in the dust. Treat it with less significance and importance. And your highest end gold, your 24K gold, your gold of Ophir, you need to take that and give it to the people in the community. And begin with me. Start by giving me a little bit of that. Yeah, this is what he's saying. What does this remind you of? The way back for you, Job, is for you to take your riches and give them to the poor. What does that sound like? The exact thing Jesus told the rich young ruler. And that is what Eliphaz is telling Job here. You are obsessed with your wealth. It's your idol. You need to destroy your idol. And if you give it to me, I'll do it for you. <laughs> Put it right in Wells Fargo. Once you do that, you'll be good to go. He's teaching him to do the same thing that Jesus taught the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 16 to 22. If Job will heed these instructions that Eliphaz is giving, and these are coming right from the Almighty, according to Eliphaz, right? He says this in verse 25, uh, what's going to happen? Then if he does this, then the Almighty himself will become his gold and precious silver. In other words, God will become your true treasure. Your true treasure right now is gold and the highest end gold. But if you get rid of those things and lay those things aside, God himself will become your precious silver, your precious gold. Now, it is true, the rich young ruler, he needed to heed Jesus' instructions, right? Because his wealth was an idol. He needed to heed these instructions. Job, however, did not need to heed them he did not need to pay attention to what Eliphaz was saying. He did not need to get rid of whatever gold he had left, if he had any left at all. Why? Because Job controlled his wealth. His wealth did not control him. There's a huge difference. The rich young ruler was controlled by his wealth. And that kept him out of the kingdom because he valued his wealth above following Jesus. Job did not do any of that. Plus, I don't even understand why Eliphaz is saying any of this. Because didn't Job lose almost all of his wealth, if not all of it, to the Sabians and Chaldeans? And then fire consumed all his sheep. Most of his wealth was in his livestock. He had thousands of animals, and they were either stolen or killed. So it's like, take, you know, oh, you have a half an ounce of gold left? Get rid of that. I mean, he didn't have a whole lot left. We've said this over and over. Eliphaz doesn't make much sense. Verses 26 to 28, for then, if you get rid of your gold and do all this and start by giving it to me, for then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to Him and He will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. Look at these promises. If Job will just only listen to his words and obey what God is saying through him and repent, He's appealing again by describing just more blessings here. If Job will listen to those instructions and repent of his hidden sin, uh, Job will, he's not really delighting in the Lord right now because he's going through such terrible stuff, but if he does this, he will delight in the Almighty. He will even begin to lift up his face in prayer to God, right? Instead of dreading the Almighty, he will pray to the Almighty. This is what Eliphaz is saying, you'll do, Job. And he is saying, when you pray to the Almighty, because now you delight in Him, because He's been a terror to you, but now you delight in Him again because you've repented. When you pray, Job, you can know for certain that your prayers will be heard because God listens to the righteous and never listens to the wicked. This is a, a, a it's true. It's repeated in Scripture. This truth that he's saying here is not true of Job, but it's true of truth. John 9, 31 even says this specifically. And he's saying, you know what? You'll pray to God and he'll hear your prayers because he listens to the righteous. You'll be righteous again and he'll listen to you and, and God is going to answer your prayers right for you. He's not going to just listen, but he'll answer your prayers for you and uh, your relationship between you and God will blossom like it was. It'll be very fruitful. And then guess what's going to happen, Job? The end result will be you will be super happy to pay your vows. This is what he's promising. And then lastly, in verse 28, 
when Job decides on any sort of matter that he's praying for, anything that he wants to put his hand to and do, Eliphaz is promising that anything that you pray for and want to do, it's going to be established for you by God because you're going to be on His side and He's always going to shine His blessed light on all of your ways and plans and matters. Joel Osteen again. It, he is an ancient health and wealth preacher. He is the Osteen. He's the Prince. He's the Jakes. He's the Joyce Meyer of his day. He just thinks that it's going to be lollipops and, and, and you know, we're going to fly around on a Pegasus when you submit to Jesus, right? You're going to be, you're going to have, a, you're going to have an entire stable full of unicorns, right? And if you drink their blood, you'll live forever. Voldemort quote, we were watching Chamber of Secrets last night. Yeah, right? This is what he's promising. It's ridiculous. Now, it is true that those who repent and trust in Christ, right, they get peace with God in some of these things. They learn to delight in the Almighty because God will ultimate, He does hear the prayers of His people. He hears all our prayers. He always listens to His children. Always. You don't think He's hearing you, but He is. Even when we're whining, He hears. Job. <laughs> Job, right? Job was whining for 40 chapters. But God might not establish every matter that we pray for because some of those matters might not fit with His will and timing. The key to having our prayers answered is in the word delight. And Eliphaz has this right, but I don't think he knows what he's really saying. To delight yourself in the Almighty means to take delight in what is pleasing to God. And when you learn to delight in things that are pleasing to Him, and then you begin to pray for those things, He's going to answer your prayers. When you start praying for what God wants, you'll see your prayers answered. Our problem is we're praying for what we want most days. And that's why our prayers are like, right? A great many Christians have powerless prayer lives because they do not delight in the Almighty and pray for things that are pleasing to Him. They pray for things that are pleasing. We pray for things that are pleasing to us, not so much as to God, and that's why our prayer lives are very impotent and weak. Eliphaz is teaching us here, this here, but I don't think he knows what he's actually, I don't think he understands this. I don't think he understands the, the connection between delighting in the Almighty and answered prayer. But you know who did understand that? That's King David. He, he really got it. In Psalm 34, Psalm 37, verse 4, he said this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Some people say, well, I delight in the Lord. I love Him, and I desire in my heart a Cadillac Escalade. That's not what the verse means. When you delight in the Lord, you are valuing and wanting and desiring what He wants. Only then will He give you the desires of your heart because the desires of your heart are His desires, the desires of His heart. That's the key to answered prayer. How many of you in here right now are learning something and you're going to change the way you pray? You're too busy focused on you and your needs and everything you want, right? You, you want what you want and you don't have your prayers being answered because you're not praying for what God wants. And God does want to provide for you, and He will, right? What does the Lord's Prayer say? right? The very first thing Jesus teaches His disciples to pray for is that the Father's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what you're supposed to pray for, firstly. Not for your need of bread. That comes second. Not for your need of escaping temptation. That comes third. Read the Lord's Prayer. Look at the order. And don't be like the Roman Catholics and just sit there and recite it. That's worthless. Pray for God's will to be done on earth and you will start to see it done on earth. And then everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary to God's will being done. God delights and desires to have His will done. When you start praying for that, it's going to happen. And I, I, I'm learning this myself. So, Eliphaz is kind of right and kind of wrong. He's wrong about Job. 29 and 30, the last verses, for when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Eliphaz ends this appeal, his third and final speech, with just one last promise blessing. And the promise blessing here is a little confusing in the wording, but its meaning is that Job, if you repent and do what I'm telling you to do, you will not only be blessed, but you will become a blessing to others. That's what he's saying. 
in the simplest way I can put it. He tells Job that when people need spiritual guidance, Job, you're going to be there for them. You're going to be there to encourage them. You're going to be there to tell them to forsake their pride and to humble themselves because God saves the lowly and he delivers even one who is not innocent. You'll be there to tell them that when they're hurting and, and need God and need to be saved. You'll be there. Job will be, Job, you will become the instrument that God uses in those moments. God will work through the cleanness of your hands, Job, right? Your righteous standing, your righteous life. He'll work through the cleanness of your life to deliver humble, repentant sinners from judgment and destruction. This is his promise. You'll not only have all these blessings, but you'll be able to impart them to others, Job. If Job repents, he will transition from sinner to saint and will be used by God to bring God's message of deliverance to others. This is Eliphaz's appeal and really a final appeal, final promised blessing to Job if he will simply repent and do what he's being instructed to do. Was he correct in his theology? Absolutely. Every sinner who repents and trusts in Christ becomes a saint to be used by God to bring the gospel to others. Was he right about Job? No, not even close. Job was already a saint. He not only believed God's message of deliverance, he lived it out. He delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. He caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. He was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. He was a father to the needy. He searched out the cause of him whom he did not know. He broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made the unrighteous drop his prey from his teeth. In other words, he worked to bring justice to those who deserved it. Job 29, 12, and 15, and 17. Job was the opposite of everything that Eliphaz charged him with. But I do like how Eliphaz includes the gospel at the very end here, where he speaks of how God forgives those who don't deserve it. In Eliphaz's mind, Job is a sinner who doesn't deserve anything from God, but God is merciful and will give it. And that's where we see the gospel, isn't it? We're sinners who don't deserve anything good from God. We are not innocent. And yet by God's grace, we have Christ and we are in Christ. If we are trusting in the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus, we have been delivered by God's message of deliverance. It's the mighty gospel. And we as saints should be sharing it with others and living it out and, and doing good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6, 10. Amen? Amen.